Well, good morning. I'm glad you guys are here this morning. Uh, if you're joining us online, I'm glad you're joining us this morning. Uh, if you don't know, my name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are going to be working through the book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible you want to get ahead, Hebrews 2 is where we're going to be, the end of Hebrews 2. Also, I want to say, if you're new here, whether you're online or in person, and we haven't had a chance to connect I love to connect with you, and we're actually going to do lunch after service next week, which I know, I know, I know, let's be honest, means you're going to have to come to church two weeks in a row, okay? But it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth, you're going to have lunch with me. Isn't that worth it? Yeah, thank you. One person agrees. Okay, hey, <laughs> so that'd be great. Also, hey, I hope you guys had a great week. I hope last weekend you had a great weekend. Um, it was it was a good weekend. Uh, we, we had the, the Good Friday service together. If you've never been to a Good Friday service that we do, it's community-wide. There, this last year, there were seven churches that joined with us to do community-wide Good Friday service. It is very different from anything else we do here, but it is one of my favorite things we do every year. Um, it's just something so beautiful about all these churches gathering together to sing together and to prepare ourselves for Easter. And then, and then we had the Easter egg hunt. If you were part of that, if you brought candy, if you helped stuff candy, if you showed up for it, th- thank you. It was bonkers. Um, before the Easter egg hunt, um, I was asked um, if uh, how many people we thought would show up. And based on last year, we planned and prepared and we thought, you know, Six or seven hundred people. Last year we had we had six or seven hundred, maybe eight hundred people, and it was by far the biggest Easter egg hunt we'd ever had. And and I'm gonna be honest, we got a little cocky. We thought like we're killing this, like we're good at this, we can do this. And then this year, if you haven't seen any photos, um, my wife was standing next to a police officer and his wife, uh, and you know they do like crowd management kind of stuff. And he said to his wife, he said. Man, I mean, there's, there's got to be at least 2,000 people here. It was nuts. All these people, crazy. And so if you're a part of that, thank you very much. It was awesome. Um, we're excited for uh, next year. And just being able to celebrate with our community and be um, uh, celebrate hospitality and welcome and party together with our community. And then last week was Easter. And I hope that was awesome. I hope it was good, meaningful, and life-giving to you last week. This week, we're in Hebrews 2. So... Here we go. Let's look. Um, Hebrews 2. Oh, my phone's right here. Um, Hebrews 2 says this. It's going to once I hit the right button. Uh, oh, there we go. There we go. Look at that. Technology. Okay. It says this. Hebrews 2 verse 10 is where we're going to be. Okay. It starts with this phrase, and this is not central to um, what we're going to talk about today, but it is important. I wanted to hit this as we hit this phrase. It says this phrase, Hebrews 2 verse 10, it says, for it was fitting for him. Now, it's, him is Jesus, right? And what he's referring to, if you haven't been along for the journey, um, what he's referring to is Jesus and his sacrifice, that for Jesus to die and, and to be raised again, for this to be God's plan of salvation for his creation was through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The, the Greek word here, this is a great translation, the Greek word here, um, it could mean fitting, it could mean appropriate, uh, it could mean proper, Right? It it's, uh, has this image of this idea of, uh, of being of the right fit, of being designed for it, right? Perfect and snug, just right the way it should be. And the reason I wanted to point this out is because sometimes 
Um, sometimes we wrestle with things in our faith. And that's, that's totally appropriate. That's, that's okay. There's a reason it's called faith, right? Because we, we believe things that we with our eyes have not seen, right? And we have faith in things. And sometimes we wrestle with things. We wrestle with parts of our faith. And, um, you know, sometimes we have questions. And one of the questions that comes up uh, sometimes is like, couldn't there have been another way, right? Like, Something in us, for many of us, feels uncomfortable to celebrate that God gave his son. Uh, something in us can, especially if, if you have um, any, any kids in your life that you love, whether they're yours or their nephews and nieces or their cousins, if you have any kids and you just imagine God gave his son, and that's beautiful and awesome, but sometimes that can make us a little uncomfortable, and we can begin to ask the question, could there have been another way? The thing is, is that um, God is not like me in my experience with French class. When I was in high school, I had to take two years of a foreign language, and for some reason that I've either blacked out or cannot, like, had no reason to begin with, I decided that the logical thing in the world we live in would be I could take Spanish or I could take French. And you remember when the French were going to take over the world. You remember that? How the French culture is dominating all of those. So I decided logically, I thought, well, I'm going to learn French, which has helped me zero, except for the fact that I know this, un, deux, trois, quatre, cinq. Under the water, the cat sank is one, two, three, four, five in, in French. Un, deux, trois, quatre, cinq. You see that? Right? There you go. Now you know as much French as I remember from two years of French. And I was not a good French student. Um, I, I passed French one which I opted to not take my freshman year. Like the logical smart thing. Most of you that had to take a foreign language, you're like, I'm just going to get it out of the way. And I was like, I was a devout procrastinator. And I'm like, why do it now when I could do it later, right? And so I didn't do it my freshman year. I took French one my sophomore year, which is the problem. Here's the tension. Okay, you ready? My junior year, I had to take French two, two semesters of French two. If I did not pass both of them, I would have to take French my senior year, all of my senior year, which would interrupt my plans to not do anything all senior year, okay? I had to take French all of senior year. If I didn't pass, and if I failed either one of those semesters, I wouldn't graduate. That's not good, okay? So my junior year, I'm taking French. I barely get by French, French first semester of French two. Second semester of French two, um, I am like, all in failing French too. And it's the last semester I have to take. Like my teacher's talking with me. She's like, Sean, all you have to do is pass this class and then you're done. You don't have, you just have to pass the class. So we had this conversation. I was like, well, what do I, what do I have to do? What grade do I have to get on my final to be able to pass? As if me knowing a number would make a difference in my performance on my test, right? And another thing you have to know about the high school I went to is we didn't have D's. Some of you only got a diploma because D's get degrees. Uh, we didn't. It just stopped at C's. Ours, if you got a 69.9, you failed. Isn't that nuts? Okay, 69.9, you failed. So I had to get a 70. Sat down with my, my teacher and was like, you know, what do I got to do? And she said, well, you got to get this grade on your test. I'm like, okay. I've been horrible at French for two years, but I'm going to nail this test because I'm delusional. Right? And I don't know if it was a miraculous work of God or if she just fudged the numbers. 
But I graduated that semester of French with a 70.3. Yes. Right? See, some of us ask this question. Could there have been another way as if God's goal in his creation is just to get a 70.3? That God would be good and sufficient if he just got a passing grade. But what the writer of Hebrews is reminding us here and what we have to remember about the God that we worship is that he is all good. Everything that he does is perfect. If there had been a better way to do it, he would have done it. God himself is not looking for a plan of salvation that's just going to get by, right? Like, oh, 70% of the time it's going to work, right? But scripture says... So often his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, and that what God did in Jesus, we have to trust and believe in a God who is good and perfect in all things and powerful in all ways, that this was the best plan that he had. So he says this, it was fitting for him, being Jesus, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. That's kind of a a Bible way of talking about salvation. It says this, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. The author. The the writer of Hebrews is going to, what we're going to look at today, the writer of Hebrews is going to elicit two images He's going to use language that makes them think of two cultural narratives. The thing is, is, is um, if you've been around here for a while, you've heard me say this again, but it's important to reiterate, is that um, language is dynamic. We, we often like to think of language like math, right? We like to think like these words mean this things, but that's just not the way language works. It changes, it ebbs, it flows. It carries emotion, it carries weight, it carries stories all along with these words of things that we don't actually ever say, but when I say a word, you know a thing. For example, okay, here's an example. If I say that someone broke through a glass ceiling... You know what I mean. It doesn't mean that somebody has an incredible vertical and someone built a very unrealistic house that had a glass ceiling and they literally jumped through the roof and broke through the glass ceiling. That's not what it means. It carries an image, it carries a picture of someone in a certain classification, in a certain job, moving or pursuing through a place that no one in their, their position had been before. It's, it's, it carries an image and it carries a weight. We do this with all kinds of words and phrases. And first century people were not any different. And so this word here, the author, your translation, if you have different translations, it might say something like um, the originator, the founder. It might even say the conqueror, which is a great, fun translation. And in Greek, these are right, oh, go back to it. These are right translations. Literally, this is what it means, but it's a phrase. It's a title that carries a story. And the story, if you're a first century uh, person, first person in first century Rome, the stories that you know are the stories of the authors. Of the authors. The authors are people like Athena. Athena um, was a Greek or Roman god, and she went into battle, she went into a competition with Poseidon. 
And she, what she wanted was she wanted a group of people. She wanted this community that existed in this one place. She wanted it to be her people. And in her cunningness and in her strength and in her power, she beat Poseidon. And so she became the god of this place that they then called after her name, they called Athens. And we have this all throughout Roman culture where cities and people and countries were not only formed and founded by some sort of patron god, but then that patron god was also responsible for protecting, saving, securing all the people who resided inside that city. All those people who resided inside that city were the people who bore their name. And the writer of Hebrews says that part of what God is doing is he's establishing a new city. He's establishing a new people. That everybody who resides inside the walls of this Jesus Christ, who is the rescuer, the redeemer, the originator, and also and also the protector and preserver, uh, that, that they are a part of his people carrying his name. And I think that part of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to lean into is this invitation, this reality that we are a people of a new nation, that no matter where we came from, that the places that we associate ourselves with, the places we find comfort and security and identity, that we've been invited to be a part of this new city, this new people of the city of Jesus Christ. And maybe, maybe, just maybe what the writer of Hebrews is hoping we would think of and see is that in the same way that someone from Oregon is called an Oregonian, someone from Florida is called a Floridian, which is a fun word to say. Someone from Arkansas, uh, sorry, someone from Kansas is called a Kansan, right? Someone from Arkansas, for some absurd reason, someone from Arkansas is called an Arkansan. That maybe, that maybe, the writer of Hebrews wants to remind us that the people who dwell in Christ are Christians, that they're Christians, that their identity, that their savior, that their conqueror, that their victorious king and the one who preserves and protects them from now and into the future is this Jesus Christ, but there's a really peculiar thing he says about it. Look at it. Look at it again. Look at it again. Something that's peculiar to us and would be even that much more peculiar to them. He says this, that this conqueror, right? That's a good way you could translate this. The conqueror, or sometimes um, uh, in ancient Greek texts, when they're talking about this, will translate this word to be the phrase, the city hero. Think Hercules, right? Or Zeus, the city hero, of the salvation through suffering? That doesn't make sense. Like every other one of these examples of these conquering, of these heroes, of these sustainers, it's through their might and through their power and through their cunningness. And yet the writer of Hebrews says that the one who serves as our savior, the one who serves as our hero, the one who serves as our conqueror and sustainer does it through his suffering, through his death. 
And how is that even possible? And so the writer of Hebrews gives us another picture, another image that a first century Jew in the Roman Empire would have been very familiar with. If you skip forward to verse 14, it says this. Verse 14 says this. Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also, he being Jesus, partook of the same. That through death, Right? That's weird. Like, I know you've probably spent a lot of time in church. Maybe it doesn't seem that weird because we talk about Jesus dying all the time, but we're talking about the conqueror, the city hero, the sustainer, and yet the writer of Hebrews says he does it through dying, through suffering, that he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Now, this is important when we're going to talk a little bit later. Um, in the Hebrew language, the word for the devil is, um, it's actually a court terminology, and the language we use in modern language would be the prosecutor, right? The prosecutor. That's actually the name of the devil in Hebrew, the prosecutor. A lot of times we translate as the accuser because in Hebrew culture, that's what they called him was the accuser, the person who came to court to accuse you of a crime, the prosecutor, he takes the weapon of the prosecutor, the accuser, and he might free those uh, who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Therefore, he being Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation. This is a big fancy church word. You're probably never going to use it anywhere else except for in church. Okay. Um, when I see it in my brain, it's not a perfect translation, but in my brain, I just translate to payment. It literally means one of two things. It could mean cleanse, like to wash clean or to cover over. And it has to do with um, ancient Jewish rituals and customs, right? But he makes payment. He covers over. He washes the sins of the people, you read through that, if you read through it, like when I read through it, it's as clear as mud. Like, what is he talking about? And it's because as 21st century Americans, um, living 2,000 years later, there's a cultural reality, an image that he's, he's using that we just don't see. And he, here it is. It's, it's called cities of refuge. Cities of refuge. Okay? In, in uh, ancient cultures, they, they predominantly, almost every single culture, um, lived by ancient cultures, lived by a, a, a motto that we often colloquially call like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? It was like the simplest, clearest form of judgment, justice. If you take from me, I get to take as much as you took from me, right? If you um, kill one of my chickens, then I get to take one of your chickens or I get to kill one of your chickens, right? If you um, steal or destroy 100 pounds of my grape harvest, I get to steal or destroy 100 pounds of your grape harvest. That it's uh, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And what would happen is when the crime elevated to the point of someone dying, they would, most ancient cultures, pursue, participate, even many places around the world would participate in what we would call vengeance killings. If, if you in some way were responsible on purpose or on accident for the death of another individual, the family, by ancient 
righteous, by ancient justice customs, would have the expectation that they could rob your family of what you rob them of. A provider, a protector, a future, income, a father, a husband, a child. And so they would pursue, brothers, uncles would pursue robbing of killing, vengeance killing, of the other person. Now, when God started to establish his nation, the nation of Israel, this was a very common practice around the world. This was normative for the way they lived. And God, in his mercy and kindness, wanted to teach them a different way of, of interacting with one another. And so he established what are called cities of refuge. Now, on the east side of Jordan and on the west side of Jordan, there's three on each side. And what would happen in a city of refuge is, let's say you're out in the field, and you're working with someone else, and something snaps, something breaks, and someone dies, right? You, you um, the, the person who is related to the person who's now dead, they're not going to just like come up to you and be like, oh man, hey, I heard you had a rough day at work. Uh, why don't you tell me about the safety processes you went through to ensure the safety of my brother to see if you had anything complicit, if you were angry or mean-spirited in any way. They're, they're enraged, right? Their brother, their son, their, their father just died. And so God established these things called cities of refuge. And if you participated in some way or if you were around and you could have been accused of being responsible for the death of someone and this debt could have been on you to pay, the death of someone else now demands your death that you could flee to cities of refuge. And you would come to the city of refuge, you'd come to the gate, and sitting at the gate, culturally what would happen all the time is sitting at the gate would be um, the, the elders of the city. And you would come and you would tell them your story. And you'd say, it, it, it wasn't on purpose, I didn't mean to do it, but now there's a, there's a debt on my head. There's, there's a people that want to see me dead to pay for the debt of this person. And this, the responsibility of the elders of the city of refuge was to take you in, to shelter you, to protect you. And that as long as you were inside the city walls of the city of refuge, you were safe. But the bummer about it was that the moment you stepped outside the city walls, there was an accuser waiting outside the city walls that had the, the right to demand payment on your debt with your death. But as long as you were inside, you were safe. For the rest of your days, you'd remain inside the city walls, sheltered and protected from the accuser. Do you see the language the writer of Hebrews is using yet? From the accuser who stands outside the city walls with receipts, like righteously with a debt that you owe, he stands outside the city walls. Now, there was one way you could leave the city. There was one way that after you find shelter in the city that you could leave the city, and it comes in Joshua 20. Joshua 20 says this, verse 6, let me just read it to you. It says, He shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment. Until, look at this, this is weird, this is weird. Until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. Then the manslayer shall return to his own city and his own house to the city from which he fled. Isn't that weird? Like, you have a debt to pay. 
You have a responsibility. You have violations. There is an accuser, a prosecutor who is outside the city walls who righteously and with justice can demand your death. You live in a constant shadow of fear of death that lays just outside the city walls. But if a man you've likely never met in your life dies, if the high priest dies, you suddenly can go free without fear of death. Here's why. Jewish writings, extra-biblical Jewish writings, expound and explain this to us even more based upon other things we see in Scripture. And they say this, that the debt of a death can only be paid with the death of a righteous man. And the most righteous man in the nation of Israel was the high priest. And so what they would say is that when the high priest would die, his death would cover, would wash away, would serve as payment, as propitiation to cover the crimes against you, the accusations, the the righteous judgment of the accuser that stands outside the city walls so that your debt could be paid by his death in your place. Do you see the image the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to see? There, here's the thing. There's a lot of things that Satan's going to lie to you about, the accuser's going to lie to you about. The fact that there are things that you are worthy of being condemned for is not one of those things. He stands outside the city wall with a list of the ways you failed, the ways you rebelled, the ways you've rejected God, the addiction and the brokenness and the failures. He stands there with a list. He's got receipts. The good news of the gospel is not that you haven't rebelled, that there isn't a debt that you owe, but the good news of the gospel is that the high priest has died in your place, that he's paid your debt so that you no longer have to serve in fear of death, enslaved inside the city walls, but he can set you free from the condemnation of the accuser who stands outside the city wall. The scripture says there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of the death, the suffering, and the sacrifice of our high priest, all those who find themselves inside the city of refuge can be set free. So here's the thing. My fear is that many of us, even this side of the cross, still hide in fear of the accuser outside the city walls. And when Jesus has died to set us free, we still hide in shame and fear and guilt and condemnation because we hear the voice of the accuser shouting over the city walls. We hear, we know, we hear it in ourselves, in our bodies. We know the things that we've done. And we hear the voice of the accuser. And we believe his threats of death. But Jesus, the good high priest, has offered himself so that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I want to end service a little bit different than, end my sermon a little bit different than we normally do. Because here's, here's what I know. 
right? We can have this conversation about God's forgiveness and there's no condemnation and shame. And we can go, yeah, don't believe the lies of the Satan. Don't believe the lies of the accuser. Don't believe the lies of the prosecutor that, that you're set free, that all the debt's been paid. We go, woo, we can sing songs, yeah. And we can leave here and we go about our busy lives still believing the lies of Satan, standing in fear behind the walls. Fearful of death and the accusation of the enemy. So I want to take just a moment and I just want to sit in silence with you. And I want to ask in that moment that maybe you just take a moment and try and be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. He already knows. But the places and the ways in your life where you have continued to believe the lies of the accuser that says that you are not worthy, that you are not that you were too broken, that you were unlovable, that if people knew that you would be unwanted, that you would be rejected, and that maybe in this moment in this time that you might hear again the mercy and grace of God who gave himself in your place. So I'm going to give you just a moment, and then I'm going to end with a prayer, and then we're going to sing and we're going to celebrate because it is good news because we've been set free from the fear of death because of the gift of our Savior. And so maybe just for a moment, could we be honest with ourselves and with God about the places that we still believe the lies of the accuser?